You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Now let's turn in our Bibles to that Psalm 132. If you're using the church Bible, it's on page 625, unless you happen to be given the one Bible that lies there that has a different pagination, in which case it's on page 700. So if you're in the 700 club, uh, there you will find Psalm 132. And since we've just sung it together, I'm not going to read the whole psalm, but sometimes singing a psalm, you were wondering when that psalm was going to end, weren't you? Um, Singing that psalm, uh, it it, uh, may not be quite so easy as we sing it to catch the structure of the psalm. So, let me read verses uh, 1 through 5 and then uh, from verse 10. Psalm 132, a song of ascents, number 13. It is, O Lord, remember David and all the hardships he endured. He swore an oath to the Lord and made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will allow no sleep to my eyes, no slumber to my eyelids, till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. And then in verse 10, for the sake of David, your servant, do not reject your anointed one. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath that he will not revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. For the Lord, verse 13, has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor will I satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints will ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow for David, and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but the crown on his head will be resplendent. We have been reading through and studying these 15 Psalms, Psalm 120 through Psalm 134, that are joined together here in a little hymn book or psalm book for special occasions, uh, probably as we have seen for pilgrims as uh, three times a year they would make their way up to Jerusalem. And presumably as they walked together, they not only talked together, but they would sing together. And uh, some of them making Uh, That long journey, as uh, I think I said a few weeks ago, children in the back seat uh, singing about ten men going to mow the meadow in order to pass the time 
the parents in the people of God, as sometimes is not true of parents in the people of God now, had the sense to understand that children can learn to sing of the glories of God just as easily as they're able to sing about Farmer MacDonald or men going to mow the meadow. And so, this was a, a very regular part of the worship of God's people, their fellowship, their instruction. Uh, think, if you were, the 12-year-old Jesus going with other 12-year-old boys for the first time, then, in a sense, you didn't need to carry the whole Psalter in your mind, although perhaps by that time he knew it off by heart. But there were these familiar hymns to sing. And like some of those hymn books and little pamphlets that are put together for special occasions, they were geared, they were specifically arranged by whoever was the ultimate editor of the book of Psalms arranged in order to accompany a kind of spiritual ascent, to be a sung companion to the experiences that God's people would go through as they gathered together on pilgrimage. We can understand that if we've never been to a great conference, a great convention, at least we've come to church. And church is different. What we sing is different what we experience is different. And we've seen, as uh, some commentators throughout the years have suggested, that these 15 psalms are arranged in what I've called five triptychs. Seen these uh, medieval altar pieces with the, the three pictures joined together that convey a, a common story and as we read through these psalms, it's as though we're going from, from one section of spiritual experience to another section of spiritual experience, and, and almost unnoticed, the atmosphere begins to change, changes from the sense of oppression and opposition that the psalmist had sung about in 120 and then almost without us noticing it, we begin to see that the focus of attention changes, and the spiritual experience deepens, as though, as we've seen, the, the psalmist is brought round a spiral staircase in which he can, he can go up higher and at the same time see down deeper into his own soul and Psalm 131 that we looked at last Lord's Day evening was such a, a beautiful place for the fourth of these sequences to come to a conclusion, that the psalmist is quietened, like a weaned child who's, who's gone through a crisis where there has been tension, where there has been, there's been warfare between mother and child in order to bring the child on, to trust the mother, and to grow to maturity. And uh, in a sense, uh, in Psalm 131, you might feel we could all just go home. But there's one more triptych to view, and it begins with Psalm 132, which stands out in these 15 Psalms. 
stands out for several reasons. David, who likes to give me little tests, like saying before I preach, this is actually one of my favorite Psalms, so little test, see if you can get up to it, told me he had done a rather unscientific survey before the service began. He couldn't find anybody whose favorite Psalm is Psalm 132, so the message is, make it our favorite Psalm. And it does stand out, doesn't it? A, because it's nobody's favorite psalm, and B, because peculiarly, unusually, in this sequence of 15 psalms, it is, comparatively speaking, a very long psalm. Actually, it's twice as long as the next longest psalm. It is three times as long as the next two psalms put together. And since we've seen in all kinds of subtle little ways that there is a design here, there is a, there is a pattern, there are, there are little subliminal messages in the way the Solomon psalm is at the center, the one who built the temple, and there are two David psalms at the side, the one who conquered the city in which the temple was set. You can't help, I think, asking the question. So, why this long psalm here? And I think part of the explanation is this. You know, you sometimes come to the end of a a delightful meal, and you're about to put the last mouthful into your mouth, and you think to yourself, do you know, I wish I hadn't eaten quite as quickly. Or you come to the end of the best cup of coffee you have ever had, and just before you take the last sip, you think, I wonder if there's any way I can extend this last sip into two last sips. And the huge difference in length between this psalm and the other 14 psalms in the series rather makes me think that this is what this psalm is meant to do. Here we are almost at the end of the pilgrimage. We are the second last day of the school holidays. What do you want to do? You look back and you think, I wish I'd spent the days better, and I wish I could extend them into the future. And so, there is this, there is this leisurely long psalm, almost as though subliminally it's here to say, just let what you have experienced be savored. Make it last as long as you possibly can. Since it is by far the longest psalm, and therefore any preacher is in danger of making the sermon on that psalm twice as long as the sermon's okay, I'm only pulling your leg, as the sermon's on the other psalms, let me, let me just walk us through this psalm, and then what I want to do at the end, is to make three points of application and implication. What is it that is going on in this psalm? Well, clearly, if you look at the psalm, clearly it's a psalm broken into two halves. Each half seems to begin with a prayer or a supplication. Verse 1, O Lord, remember David and all the hardships he endured. 
And then verse 10, that is a kind of link between the first half and the second half, for the sake of David, your servant, do not reject your anointed one. So this is itself fascinating, isn't it? This is for the first time in these Psalms, this is a reference to a specific historical person. And within the Psalm, there is a reference to a specific historical event. The psalmist is in the city of David. He spent several days worshiping, fellowshipping together in the city of David. And now as he's uh, in the second last day of the pilgrimage, as it were, he's reflecting at leisure on the, the blessing of God that has brought him here that is actually so intimately connected to what God did in the experience of David. And then you notice in verse 2, there is a response to the prayer. David swore an oath to the Lord and made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. And then in verse 11, there is a response to the second petition. The Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath that he will not revoke. In other words, the two halves of the psalm are about, first of all, David's commitment to the Lord, and then second, and actually undergirding the first, the Lord's commitment to David. In a sense, that's everything, isn't it? David's commitment to the Lord, out of which this city and ultimately this temple, and all the privileges that I as a pilgrim have enjoyed here, they have all got to do with the commitment of King David. And yet at the same time, this city, this temple, these opportunities for pilgrimage, fellowship, worship, growth, strengthening, they've really all got to do with the Lord. David swore an oath of commitment to the Lord, and I'm grateful for him. But the Lord swore an oath of commitment to David, and that's the groundwork of the whole thing. Well, what was the nature of David's commitment to the Lord? How, how would you measure commitment? How do you measure your own commitment to the Lord? Well, notice three things. First of all, David is willing to suffer hardships for the Lord. That's the, that's the first litmus test of commitment to the Lord. Uh, you swallow hard when you, you hear David reading Adam's letter this evening, and, and many of us have actually met him. He walks on humility. He is full of grace. And his letter underscores this for our brothers and sisters, and, and therefore also challenges us, his willingness to suffer hardships for the Lord. O Lord, remember David and all the hardships he endured. Now, what was the purpose of those hardships? Well, his willingness to suffer hardship for the Lord was the fruit of the single-mindedness of his commitment to the presence of the Lord. 
he swore an oath and made a vow, I will not enter my house or go to my bed or allow sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. And then this passage, the first time in your life you've sung about Ephrathah, I'm sure. Uh, what's all this about? Well, it's about, it's about what Lynn was praying about, about God reigning between the cherubim. It's about the Ark of the Covenant. And do you remember in those, those chapters in, in 1 Samuel that precede Saul and David, uh, how it was that the Ark of the Covenant in which God had said in Exodus 25 that He would meet with Moses. There, this, this box covered by the mercy seat and the, the cherubim there spread across it, this was, the, this was the physical expression and symbol, almost one might say sacrament, through which the power and the presence of God would be known among His people. Just as from one point of view, we take bread and we take wine, and it's just bread and it's just wine, and you can throw it out afterwards if you want, but we use it according to the command of Jesus, and as we do so, as the elders bring us the bread and the wine, they're, they're really saying to us, Jesus has, Jesus has given us food for you, and this is His way of saying to you, I want to feed you, I love you. These are the love parcels of Jesus, and, and to each one of us as we, as we share at the Lord's Supper, it's as though the Holy Spirit unwraps the parcel and says, now, this is the way Jesus is precisely the Savior you need for your particular sins. And so, although it's just bread and wine, or we might say this book, I don't know what you do with old Bibles. I suspect very few of you, when you move on to another Bible, take the old Bible and tear the pages out of it. But it's the same paper, it's the same ink, same covers as any other. Why would you not do that? Why would you feel strange in doing that? It is just a thing. It's because it's become to you in the power of the Spirit it's become to you the, 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 the means, this particular, this particular little book, or perhaps better, my slightly bigger one, this particular book is the book uniquely through which God has spoken to me. He has accompanied me. I wouldn't tear up the pages. I could. It's just a book. It's just ink. It's just paper. It's just battered leather and some sellotape, and the box was just a box. But it was a box that God had said something about. He said, by that box, I will meet with my people and show them my power. And you remember, He did so, didn't He? When they crossed the Jordan, the priests carried the Ark of the Covenant into the River Jordan, and the waters parted. And when they marched round the city of Jericho, and the people inside were probably jeering at them, carrying this box, 
And then the walls came tumbling down. And then you remember in the days of Eli and his waster sons, the people of God still had the box, but they didn't have the faith. And they were defeated, and the Ark of the Covenant was stolen. And when Eli heard about it, this was its significance, when Eli heard about it, he had a heart attack. He fell down dead. And do you remember when the Philistines had the ark? They put it in the temple of Dagon. High, stupid little box. Big God Dagon. And that was the night that the God Dagon collapsed. And so they started, it's almost like musical ark in those chapters of some. They start moving the ark around because they sense somehow or another the power of God is associated with this symbol. And then eventually, well, they're fighting over it, but eventually God's people get their ark back. And uh, what we are told in the narrative that's picked up here in uh, verse 6 is that for two decades it was, it was just kind of lying it was lying down there. Indeed, this psalm gives us an indication. You ever, you, you ever this experience, ministers sometimes of this experience, you, I, you know, I'd like to read a passage of Scripture, my Bible's in the car. Do, you have a, do we have a Bible, you know, running around, you know, and then blow the dust off the Bible? And that was the Ark of the Covenant. It was in a cupboard somewhere. Um, and David wants to bring the ark back. And he goes with scores of soldiers, thousands of soldiers. And they, they have this great moment when, you remember, this is the moment when David dances before the Lord. He is ecstatic because now he's conquered Jerusalem. It's become the city of David but the great symbol of God's presence has come back. And that's what he's been committed to. It's not just the box. It's the God who had revealed himself on occasions when that box had been present. And he is, he is beside himself. Remember how his wife demeans him because he was so excited about the Ark of the Covenant. Why was he so excited? Because he was so committed to the symbol that God had given to his people, a symbol of his presence and power among his people being right there in the epicenter of the people's lives, their government, their worship, their city, their everything. Absolute, resolute devotion to the presence of the Lord, dwelling among His people. And you notice if you just skip your eye down, it really doesn't matter what translation you're using. The language is used again and again. In verse 5, He wants to find a place for the Lord. 5b, a dwelling for the mighty one of Jacob. Verse 7, let's go to His dwelling place. Verse 8, arise, O Lord, and come to your resting place. And it runs over also into the second half of the psalm. 
because his passion is for the presence of God and a sense of the presence of God among his people. So you can understand why it is that uh, this psalm begins with a petition, O Lord, remember David and all the hardships he endured. He's not saying to the Lord, O Lord, I'm, I'm heartbroken. It moves me to think about David's hardships. He's saying, O Lord, remember in days when there is an absence of the sense of your presence. Remember David and his passion for your presence. And of course, you remember when uh, Eli died, his his now bereft, widowed daughter-in-law gave birth to a child, a son, and the son was called Ichabod. And if I can paraphrase that, what it means is, where on earth has the glory of God gone? And so here is David against that background, longing for a sense of the presence of God among his people and in the land, because ultimately his concern is for the glory of the Lord. Yes, it's true that there's a willingness to suffer hardship for the Lord and a single-mindedness in his commitment to the presence of the Lord, but his greatest desire, and this is what comes out in verses 6 to 9, is that in the land among the people, in the church, in Zion, which is poetic language for the church, not just in the city as bricks and mortar, but in the church of God, the glory of God should be promoted. May your priests be clothed with righteousness. May your saints sing for joy you know, one of the very early Christians, a man called Ignatius, very unusual Christian, uh, actually longing to become a martyr for Jesus Christ. And as he's taken to Rome to be martyred, he, he writes letters to various churches who had sent messengers to visit him. And one of the things he says is this, the thing that will destroy the temple's of the pagan idols is our worship. Our worship. Remember how Paul speaks about that to the Corinthians and says, you know what I long for in in your church? Very pagan environment, at least as pagan as our environment, more so, more challenges for Christians. I long that if any outsider comes in, he should should find himself flat on his face and say, surely God is in this place. And that's what he longs for. That's what he longs to see restored to God's people. And clearly, we don't know when, when this psalm was written. Was this psalm written in David's time? Was this psalm maybe written during the 
the worst days of Solomon. It certainly would have been used, wouldn't it, when the exiles returned in those waves and they, they saw in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah and they saw the, the city walls were in ruin and the temple of God was in ruin. In a sense, it's, it's, its resonance in my heart would depend on the circumstances in which I found myself. Think about some of these countries that are now under Islamic oppression, where once the gospel of Jesus Christ reigned, and the presence and power of God was felt. You know that Egypt was one of the great centers of Christianity for centuries. And there you are a Christian, and you you read a psalm like this, and, and you, you long, as it were, for the glory to return. And there's this heart cry, and then there's this beautiful response. For the sake of David, your servant, do not reject your anointed one. And it, it, uh, it takes further verse 1, and it links into the rest of the psalm, doesn't it? Because then there's another voice that speaks. Uh, you know, we really should have sung this in at least two voices, I think, maybe even four voices, because there's another voice that speaks and says, Dear one, even more significant than David's commitment to the Lord is the Lord's commitment to David. David may have sworn an oath that he wouldn't sleep until the ark was brought back, but the Lord himself, verse 11, has sworn an oath to David, a sure oath that he will not revoke one of your own descendants I will place on your throne. And we have this beautiful exposition of this covenant of God, how his promises are sure, it's, it's, almost as though, it's almost as though he's saying, child, do not be anxious. Yes, you look back to the, the benediction that came through David, or you look back to the benediction that came through someone else, but uh, you need to look higher. You need to look deeper. You need to look further. It is all right he has not changed. He never lies. His oath is secure, and he will never fail you. He has chosen Zion. And then he goes on to describe how abundant are the blessings of this God. This is my resting place forever. Here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor will I satisfy with food. I will clothe her priests with salvation, and her saints will ever sing for joy. Now, of course, the psalmist only has his own world in which he's, he is able to receive this revelation from God. And so this revelation from God, because he doesn't, he doesn't see everything that is, 
there in the New Testament Scriptures, he's in a kind of, he's in a room where the light is not fully shining. And so, he sees everything in his, in terms of his own experience. But what he sees in terms of his own experience is, is, uh, is the blessing of God's presence among his people. So, that the priests notice in verse 9, he prays, may your priests be clothed with righteousness, may your saints sing for joy. And here's the response, I'll clothe my priests with salvation and her saints will ever sing for joy. I've pledged myself to it. I will not go back on my word. There will be such an abundance that even the poor will be satisfied. Verse 15b. And then at the end, God's promise means that his triumph is certain. I will make a horn grow for David. That's poetic language, isn't it? Horn, the symbol of strength, power, authority, dominion, victory, triumph. I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp. Remember how often that picture language of light is used of God's people? He's He's called them as He calls Christ, as He calls Paul, as He calls us to be a light to the nations. I'll set up a lamp for my anointed one. I'll clothe His enemies with shame. What a picture. He clothes His priests with righteousness. He clothes His priests with salvation. He clothes His enemies with shame. What does that mean? It means that his enemies look at what God is doing to his people and for the first time openly. They are ashamed. They don't know where to look. They don't know where to hide. Every thought of accusation that their consciences have heard as they've demeaned God's people suddenly flood out. They have been so big, so intimidating, so arrogant. but now they're clothed in shame. And the crown on his head will be resplendent. Well, I don't really have any time for application, do I? But let me just give you the headings. The first is this. It's personal. What a challenge this is, isn't it? that it is this kind of devotion to the presence of the Lord that draws forth from the Lord His willingness to make His presence known. Maybe the greatest tragedy that befalls a Christian church, I mean a congregation, is that the presence of God is never sensed among the people and nobody notices and nobody cares. So, there is such a need for us, isn't there, personally, corporately? This is, this, is the, this is the quintessence of our evangelism together, really, isn't it? That when people come among us, they can't explain it. They don't know what it is, but they sense it's almost as though there's somebody else in the room 
Indeed, sometimes it even feels in the room as the invisible someone is far bigger than the sum total of all the people who are there. So, there's a personal application here. There's a, there's a beautiful doctrinal application that I just want to mention, and you can go away and think about it. This is a beautiful illustration of the way in which God's sovereignty and human responsibility connect together, isn't it? We read the first verses, and we say, uh, David is 100% committed to this. We read the second half, and we say, the Lord is 100% sovereign in this. We don't draw the implication, so David doesn't need to be committed to this. The two things are, as it were, beautifully harmonized in the working of God. He is all-sovereign without reducing our responsibility, the significance of our activity. Just as in the same way, incidentally, He is, and most people find this easier to grasp, He is omnipresent, isn't He? Now guess we all believe He's omnipresent. But is He only omnipresent in this room where you aren't? Does His omnipresence on this platform come to here and then start here again? And even to put it that way makes me realize, doesn't it? No, His presence is related to my life in a completely different way from the way I'm related to it. And it's the same with every aspect of His sovereignty. And here is a beautiful illustration of the fact that David's passion for the presence of God doesn't mean that God's sovereignty is irrelevant, nor does God's commitment to His presence mean that David's passion is irrelevant. But God's passion to establish His glory is, as it were, ministered by Him through David's passion for that glory. So, there is a personal application, there's a doctrinal application, and just for the sake of poetic effect, let me say there is a Christological application. What do I mean by that? I mean that this is a psalm that doesn't actually finish until you get to the New Testament. And uh, the opening of Luke's gospel makes that clear, doesn't it? Those of you who have an Episcopalian background or who secretly are free kirkers who read the prayer book, um, the Benedictus, You remember Zechariah? What are the first words that come out of Zechariah's mouth when he hears what God is about to do? Well, it's a reference to the closing words of this psalm, isn't it? God is raising up a horn. He is sending out a light. This is is one of the ways in which the Old Testament is moving forwards to the ultimate fulfillment of this promise in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the interesting thing is that both halves of this psalm are fulfilled in Him, aren't they? He is the God who is pledged to bring about the 
covenant redemption of His people, to clothe all His people as priests with salvation. But He's also the King. He's the seed of David who was promised. He's the one through whose consecration and commitment, whose willingness to suffer, the presence, the indwelling presence of God by the Holy Spirit is brought to the church and to every single Christian believer. Actually, the language here points forwards to Philippians 2, doesn't it? Lord, you remember, you remember the way David experienced humiliation. You remember his devotion, and you answered his prayers. Lord, you remember Jesus' humiliation. Although he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself and took on him the form of a servant, was born in the likeness of men, was humbled to death, even the death of the cross, in order that he might be highly exalted. What was the first thing he did when he was highly exalted? Well, he tells us himself what he was going to do. And Peter tells us what he had done in his great sermon on the day of Pentecost. He went to his father, and he said, Father, send your Holy Spirit, our Holy Spirit, into their hearts so that they may become the new Jerusalem, the new temple, that the ark of the covenant may dwell within their souls, and that they'll know that we will never leave them and that we will never, ever forsake them. So, no matter what it cost David… It was but a shadow of what it cost Christ, and no matter the glory that David brought to Jerusalem, it was just a pair of spectacle lenses into the glory that Jesus Christ would ultimately bring to us. It's a great thing to read a psalm and to be able to say in your mind to whoever was the author, I actually know more about how this psalm ends than you do. But do you? Is it, is it finding its end in you? Its willingness to suffer anything for the presence of God and this deep-seated, beautiful assurance that if that's true of me, it's only true of me because he is even more determined that I will know His presence. What a great thing it is, surely, to be a Christian believer. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word and for the Spirit who interprets it to us, and not only in the public words that are spoken, but interprets it by way of application to each of us. We thank You that Jesus Christ is so sufficient that there is no sin of any sinner in this room that He is not able to pardon. And we thank You that there is no need 
that he is too weak to succor. And we thank you that there is no situation in which he is barred from being present with us. And so we long to see his glory in our own lives, in our families, in our church, and also in our beloved country in these days. So hear us and bring fresh elements of this psalm to pass in our experience too. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.